0: Centering is the first thing that a potter needs to do before it is possible to turn the clay into a vessel. If clay is not centered on the spinning wheel, you will get only chaos when you try to drop the walls Make a vase, or a bowl, or a plate. So the first thing that a potter does, take this lump of clay, put it as close as possible to the center, set the wheel spinning, and then with elbows braced firmly on their thighs and hands braced firmly around the clay, the potter seeks to center that clay. It's important to be braced, because the clay resists. There are forces that, want to make, that make the clay want to move off in this direction or that. And of course, it isn't, it isn't a, a perfectly symmetrical piece of this malleable stone dug from the earth. It's got lumps and bumps, and they press against the hands, trying to move the potter from their steadiness. And just as uh, Mary Caroline Richards describes, the potter brings their hands together so the clay thins and rises and then presses down, bringing it down and wider, over and over again, doing that to compress the clay, make its, all of its particles as tightly together as possible, but but also, always with that steady centering. Until the clay is centered, nothing else can happen. I had heard that this term was also used in dance, ballet, I thought. But I don't know anything about ballet, so I got in touch with somebody who does, a professional ballet dancer of our acquaintance, Miranda Defoe, who is the uh, daughter of Veronica Agronoff defoe our, um, <clears throat> our wonderful pianist, whom we've already heard today. And I uh, texted Miranda and said, is this, a, is this a term with ballet? And she said, it's not a formal term, but she knew just what I meant when I said what this service was about. She said, it's, it's essential for us as dancers to be centered physically. Well, that didn't surprise me at all. Of course you have to be centered before you can leap and and spin and rise up on your very, very tips of your toes. But she also said physically and mentally in order to dance. And that spoke to me also of what we do here in the service that we are centering not only by being still in our bodies, physically like the clay is centered on the wheel, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually trying to find that stillness. Without it, a dancer can't dance, and with it, She can do marvelous things. It's that focus of attention, even as one's vision is wider, as Richards says. And as we saw right there in our opening piece by Veronica, the kind of concentration that allows a pianist to keep on playing, even when a little rascal is knocking her camera right over, it was a close thing. For the potter, something happens in the process of centering the clay. It's unmistakable. One moment, there's a bit of a wobble. Again, that feeling that the clay is resisting, pressing against one's hands and trying to knock them off their balance, off their center. And then, although the wheel is spinning and the sounds of the whir of the machinery and the splash of the water and the friction of the clay against one's hands are all there, there is this stillness, a stillness like silence when suddenly under your hands the clay is perfectly centered. Even in the midst of the spinning that helped make it possible, the still point of the turning world is right there. And at that moment of centering, the potter knows, now I can bring up the walls. I can make a vessel. I can make a vase that holds air and water. This is part of a series that we're doing on and off of um, exploring elements of the service. And um, this element of the service where we have our centering uh, words and bell and silence, well, parts of it go way back to um, before my time. The bell was brought to us, brought to be a regular part of our service by um, Our previous parish minister, settled parish minister, Ken Collier. As I understand it, hearing about it uh, secondhand largely, um, there was some bemusement when, when Ken started ringing a bell in the middle of the service. Why are we doing this? What is this all about? Now this is a pretty hardcore humanist congregation. It's shifted and grown more diverse and humanism in our congregation has opened up to be less mm, allergic to uh, ritual. But at the time, there was that sense of, hmm, why are we doing this strange thing that um, reeks of mysterious ritual in the middle of the service? But Ken stuck with it. We stuck with it. And when I came on board, it was just considered a regular part of the service. And so I continued it and enjoyed it very much. And it's revealing how this action that had been mysterious to people at first shifted over time. Because I remember, I don't know, a year or two, three, my time here, um, I was engaged in planning something. I I think it was a big class with some members of the congregation. And we were talking about the need to to bring people back into into the center, into the main group after they'd been scattered around campus in small groups in the middle of this class and talking about how we were going to do that. And I suggested, well, we could ring our our bell. And there was this sort of startled response from uh, the people I was planning with. And people said, no, we couldn't do that. The bell is for the service. Something had happened. It had become special and it becomes sacred because of what happened there when we ring the bell in the service. These are often called meditation bells. That's a bit of a misnomer. They're Tibetan, they come from Tibet, but the Tibetans don't use them in their uh, meditation practice, which goes back a very long way and is steeped in Buddhist and pre-Buddhist traditions. They don't call it a meditation bell, but I can see why that term kind of glommed on to these singing bowls. Because the experience that we have when we center there listening to the bell is a lot like meditation, like the meditation that we might practice sitting or walking in, in other traditions. So what happens? We ring the bell. I added that phrase of following the sound into silence, because that's how it struck me, no pun intended, that this loud but melodious sound tapers off very gradually. And so it invites us to also go into a quieter and quieter and quieter space until we're in silence. And then, As Richard said, maybe we can hear what was underneath. Hear what was beneath, not only the physical noises around us, but the noise within. As we come to stillness, we discover something. Can see why we think of it as meditation. There's another piece of this ritual, of course, that's come along more recently. Something that came out of early conversations between me and Dan Harper when he came on about a dozen years ago, um, that always thinking as an educator, he's our uh, minister of religious education, he said he wanted something to happen in the service that reached the children, um, that was pedagogically uh, a piece of education about our our worship and and our tradition. And the kids, um, when we all meet in person in the main hall, Usually, um, if they want to go to religious education, they go after 10 or 15 minutes. So all they were really hearing was announcements and greeting time. They were having our chalice lighting. They would leave after the ringing of the bell and then the first hymn. So all they really got was that chalice lighting and and the first hymn of our tradition. And he said, can we have just a, a quote, just a very short reading for them to carry with them. Might fit with the theme, maybe, it doesn't always have to, um, so that they understand what the adults are doing here before they go on their way. So we added these words. And maybe that's what people think about as they come to silence. I hope we'll talk about that. I'd like a continuation of this service. It feels like a wonderful opportunity. Uh, would be for all of us to share in our breakout rooms after the service. What does a centering time mean to you? Um, how, how does What role does it play in your hour here at church, in your week? Um, it will be very interesting to hear that from one another. Now, in the Christian tradition, there is a kind of analogy to this experience, um, an annual one, and we're in it right now. It's called Advent, the four Sundays before uh, Christmas, and there's a sort of slightly more secularized version, the counting down that begins on December 1st with a little advent calendar, um, 24 days until one opens that last little little window on Christmas morning. Whatever it is, um, <coughs> whether it's practiced more secularly or religiously, The meaning is preparation for the coming of Jesus, for Christmas, Advent, a time of preparation like the potter preparing the clay to move into action. As MC Richard says, it's not about just stillness. It's not about being interior. It's a preparation that allows you to do the next thing to widen out the clay, to make it live and have room for its purpose. A really interesting thing to me about this word, Advent, in this season, the season of which Jan Richardson was speaking when she wrote her poem, her blessing for Advent, on the word prepare, is that Advent is kind of a redundant word. The root... Vent means to come. So to come is already an action with a direction. You can go away, you can go towards something, you can go in many directions. To come is always to move toward the speaker. Somebody is coming, they're coming toward this person who's speaking right now. And then the prefix add is the prefix that means toward. So it's like toward coming toward. Preparation for preparation, which, of course, is what Jesus' birth is, is a preparation, the beginning of the 33 years of his teaching. And it also echoes that fact that we are always preparing, that it needs to be done again and again which is why Christians celebrate Advent and then Christmas every year. Over and over again, we prepare. And that's why we do this every week. We need to center and recenter. We get knocked off balance. We get knocked out of that stillness and we stop being able to hear what is underneath. All the noise of our own thoughts, the busyness of our time, our week. And potters are the same way, you know. You go to a potter's workshop and you'll see all the beautiful vessels there that have been completed and fired and glazed. But what you don't see is the dozens in between. In between each one there might be many, many vessels that ended in just a lump of misshapen clay as the walls collapsed and they just had to be scraped off the wheel and turned into new clay and started again, because oftentimes, because they weren't properly centered. Over and over again, we practice centering. And so as we come together, Maybe we come having had a pretty calm week, a pretty, we come in a pretty calm and centered and ready frame of mind. Already physically, mentally, spiritually ready for whatever may unfold in this time together. Or maybe we come really roiled with the chaos of our thoughts, of our relationships, of our jobs, of what's happening out in the world, and that silence helps us come to that center. Either way, sometimes it's only when we center that we hear what was beneath, that we hear in the stillness something that had not been in our awareness before. And so the transformation begins. We do it again and again. We prepare again. We return again. We center again and again so that we can create a vessel for our lives. So may we do.